and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's time again for our monthly conversation with Grow, and let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China and how is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Great to be here. So the Chinese government announced to issue an additional 1 trillion RMB of central government bonds just soon after our last podcast. It also raised the fiscal deficit from 3% to 3.8%. Now, the money that the central government raised will be transferred to the local government, basically for infrastructure investments related to the prevention of natural disasters, as well as post-disaster construction. Now, for this time, I think most economists and investors will agree that this is a special move for two reasons. First, it's not common for the central government to raise additional debt like this. The last time this happened was 2020 during the COVID. And prior to that were 2017, 2007, and 1998. And then second, the Chinese government has been fairly reluctant to let fiscal deficit exceed 3% all these years. So the willingness to break about this implicit limit this time probably implies that policymakers are willing to add more debt to stimulate the economy more. Now, of course, we have to admit that this 1 trillion yuan debt is really a small number, especially in the context of such a large Chinese economy. But rather than the fiscal impact, I think this carries a stronger signaling impact to the market. And indeed, investors seem to be building up a little bit of expectation on upcoming policy stimulus, and the stock market seems to be bottoming out as well. So how my question to you is, do you think we can be a little bit more constructive on growth policies, especially when now we are very close to December, as we will have the Central Economic Working Conference? What do you think? I think the 1 trillion special bond issuance is small in size, but its significance lies in the timing. So it's very rare that China issue a special bond to replenish or expand its fiscal deficit at the end of the year. I think historically it only happened once or twice, and this is the third time. So I think it shows that the leaders are willing to be flexible in a year where the Chinese economy is struggling to recover. I think even in this year, though, the Chinese fiscal deficit is about 3%. So it's a very restrained fiscal deficit while the economy needs all the help it needs. I think going into the next year, because the special bond issuance at this juncture is not going to be immediately spent. So because towards the year end, you know, people are starting to go back to the village to visit parents. Construction workers probably suspending their work because of the weather condition is poor, etc., etc. Much of the money, I would say that it will be spent early next year. So it would actually ease into next year's recovery to help it. So I would say that timing is very significant. And also it shows that this year's 5% growth target is largely in the back. Also next year's 5% is getting some help from the top. And the top is willing to be flexible on how to spend this money. You just mentioned that 5% growth target this year is very likely to be achievable. Next year should also be fine as well. Could you elaborate a little bit more details, especially now it's November, so we probably have started to forecast some numbers for the Chinese economy. What are some of the numbers in your mind? And also, I think more importantly, what will be the key drivers of growth in next year? 
I think this year has been quite interesting. In the first quarter, we see a nice rebound. Even in the property sector, they're still outing. Uh, we were seeing a very nice rebound in the first quarter, but then things start to slow down and then pick up again recently. I think property is still a very significant drag on the economy. Land sales is halved. I think property investment is about minus 10% year-on-year growth. I think sales is about 700 to 800 million square meters this year versus 11 to 12, 1,000 to 1,200 million square meters last year, and also 1,700 million square meters the year before. So this year is substantially down from a down year last year. Going into next year, I think the property sector will continue to trend down because urbanization process is slowing and also demographic is aging. So the demand for new housing is slowing down accordingly as well to probably a more sustainable of seven to 800 million square meters a year. So one should be getting used to a new normal in the housing sector. But even so, in 2023, even though the housing sector is still a very significant drag on the economy, but we muddled through. We managed to get probably 5% growth for the year. So it means that some other sectors must be compensating the void that is being left by the property sector. So if you look at the Chinese manufacturing industry, so it's going banana. I think manufacturing investment is more than 10% growth year on year. And also in part, uh, some of the infrastructure in, uh, spending as well. So high-end manufacturing industries, uh, including the stellar industry of new energy cars, the EVs. So in China, every three car sales now is one is the EV. And I think China is now the largest exporter of EVs of the world. So I think it's to a very large extent, it's making up for what is left behind by the property sector. So I think going forward, we will continue to see recomposition, restructuring of the Chinese economy towards a high-tech manufacturing industry. While the property sector has already fulfilled its historical mission, being one of the growth pillars of the Chinese economy for the past two decades, I think going forward, because property growth is going to normalize, urbanization is going to be decelerating or slowing down, Therefore, we shouldn't be expecting property to be contributing to growth as much as it used to. But next year, going into 2024, as uh, sales stabilize at around 700 to 800 million square meters, its drag on the economy would be less obvious than the last two years. That's very interesting. We'll come back to the property topic later, but right now I do want to drill a little bit more on the manufacturing side. Because manufacturing partly supports the domestic consumption, but especially in the past, a large part of manufacturing is actually exposed to exports. And my question to you is, we discussed the manufacturing, domestic demand probably bottoming out, probably drag is getting smaller. But my question to you is, how about export? This year has been particularly challenging for Chinese export because simply that the economy globally was not particularly strong. Now we are seeing some clues that uh, it looks like the U.S. economy was not as bad as I think most people initially expected. So assuming that U.S. sort of held up in terms of the economic strength, Europe a little bit softer, but overall we probably are seeing slightly better economic growth globally. Does it mean that the Chinese exports would at least improve a little bit? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's not about 
the Chinese export growth slowing down because we, we had a really good three years during the COVID pandemic. I think China was the global manufacturing center of the world back then. So I think going to now after COVID, people realize that probably you need two supply chains instead of just a one linear, super lean, I mean, supply chain like it used to. So once you get another pandemic hit, then everything will be in disarray once again. So I think the world realized that you actually need a backup system. And that's why in the past two years, we're seeing new emerging manufacturing center emerging in other parts of the world. For example, Mexico for the U.S. and also Vietnam and Southeast Asian countries for to complement what the China is doing now. So I think if you look at the trade composition, so not only the value-added goods exports from China to the rest of the world, is increasing. So it's now made up more than half of Chinese exports. China has already successfully remodeled itself from a low-end, low-value-add exporter to a high-end, more sophisticated exporters. That's number one. And number two, I think you were right to point out the U.S. probably going to slow down from this year. But the U.S. is no longer the biggest trade partner for China, even though it's still one of the biggest but I think the Chinese trade with Southeast Asian countries now is more than what it trades with the U.S. And that's quite interesting to know. And also some of the Chinese exports or some of the onshore manufacturing facilities, some goods that used to be made in China now is being shipped overseas as well. But it's still Chinese owned, right? So many of the Chinese merchants and Chinese businessmen opening factories in Southeast Asia. So for example, a couple of years ago, a very giant shoe manufacturer relocated much of its manufacturing facilities to Vietnam. So now many of the entrepreneurial Chinese businessmen opening high-end manufacturing center in Malaysia, Indonesia, and also in India. So if you now make a trip to Southeast Asia, you can't help but notice that you know there's just so many Chinese-speaking guys around, right? So many of the Chinese restaurants catering to their demand. So I think things are changing. China not only is still a export powerhouse, it has already remodeling itself towards a high-end manufacturing while shifting some of the lower-end stuff to the neighboring countries because you can enjoy lower cost, lower labor cost, land cost, and also favorable policies. Things are changing a bit. Just because the growth in exports is slowing down doesn't mean that China is being shifted away from a global manufacturing center. And also, if you look at the, the trade figure, so each year, the Chinese exports generate about 80 billion US dollars in current account surplus. So that's just phenomenal. 80 billion a month current account surplus is like some European countries, entire country's GDP. So that is very significant. So I would say that China still enjoy relative strength in its manufacturing sector. And also some of the manufacturing facilities, especially the low-end stuff, has been shifted out by the Chinese to the neighboring countries. That's very interesting. I think there are three points that I think particularly useful for investors that you just mentioned about export structure. Number one, Chinese companies are going out to build plants outside China, so a diversification of production capacity. Second point that you mentioned, which is really good, is that Chinese exports are raising their value added. And then third one is that even the demand structure is changing, diversifying from largely U.S. Europe in the past to now, including a lot of Southeast Asian as our new customers in China exports. So that's definitely very, very interesting. 
Now, if we move on to talk about property, you already mentioned a bit just then. But my question to you is: If we consider so-called the new objectives from Chinese government in the property market, they started to mention more about developing a rental market. And what caught my attention most is that they want to develop social housing or public housing, however you want to call it. Would that be able to absorb a little bit of inventory away from the current commodity housing? Because data basically shows that we have twenty months of inventory in the Chinese property market. So, if we have more development on social housing, are we going to take a little bit of that from the inventory? Would that be one of the ways to accelerate the desocking cycle, or you think that we simply have to take a long time for the inventory to digest gradually? I think it's going to be hard. Already, we have so much inventory in the marketplace. Unless you repurpose some of the buildings you've already built but unsold towards the social housing, then it probably helps to digest some of the inventory. But overall, if you do that, then it certainly will invite a lot of criticism for developers, for example, for the houses that is being built in the past couple of years. They were acquired at a very high land price, so all the way until 2021. Land price has been rising rapidly. Therefore, the housing construction has been very costly all the way up to that point. So, if you want to repurpose those buildings to social housing, then you have to reimburse the developers for their losses, which is difficult to do. So, I would say that because social housing has been an, a very important initiative to alleviate the、uh, housing burden for many of the Chinese families, but the fact that its result is Minimum. None of us can feel it. Basically, otherwise, why would the Chinese property price have been rising so rapidly for so many years? It's precisely because there wasn't enough cheap house for families who can't afford to buy. So that's why everybody was squeezed into the commercial residential sector. So I think as a result, if you hope that the social housing initiative that has been around for years that could alleviate the current situation, probably you're hoping a little too much. I think going forward, once again, we have to readjust our expectation to a much lower sales per year sort of environment. In this new normal, you're probably going to sell 700 to 800 million square meters a year. But even so, if you look at the housing under construction、uh, numbers, right? So you have 10 billion square meters being built, of which 6 billion square meters is residential. So even at the current rate of 800 million square meters a year. It will take you more than ten years to sort of build all those houses and sell it. So it's just a phenomenal, monumental task for the regulators to overcome. So I think one has to be very patient now and also get used to or accept the, the new normal, where we still have a, a very heavy housing inventory to clear, and it probably going to take some years before we can fully resolve the problem. Right, so I guess we really need to <laughs> wait for a few years. <laughs> Patience. Patience is required. Okay, point taken. Now, lastly, I, I do want to discuss about the RMB. How you just mentioned about the eighty billion current account surplus, which can be a country's GDP. So theoretically, it should be supportive of the RMB. But you see that RMB has been fairly weak this year, largely because of the rates reason. If we look at the rates, particularly on the long end. Of Chinese rates, we talking about two point five, two point six percent. For U.S., it's around five percent. So basically, it's a setup for carry trade that will allow traders to short the RMB. Now, the question that I do have for you is, what would be the outlook for the currency in the coming year? 
at Julius Baer, our view for next year is that the U.S. rate hike cycle is probably over. So there is a chance that the dollar may marginally weaken in 2024. But at the same time, if the Chinese economy stops deteriorating or even improve a little bit, then the dollar yen cross should maintain at around 7.3. That's our forecast for the next three months. And then towards later this year, we may see the Fed going to 7.1. And that's the forecast for the next 12 months at Julius Bear. How I know that your view is that the rear of RMB should have hit the cyclical low. And by the way, for those who don't know REAR, that basically stands for Real Effective Exchange Rate. So how can you elaborate a little bit more on this point and how would you predict the RMB to go next year? It has reached a cyclical low. So I think 7.3, 7.4 should be one of the lower points for this cycle. And also recently, we're seeing the pressure on the Chinese yuan starting to attenuate. So one shouldn't be too pessimistic about the outlook of the Chinese yuan. Now, one puzzle for 2023 is that you know, Chinese enjoy record current account surplus month after month. China has about 3.1 trillion US dollars in forex reserve. Their foreign asset is increasing, etc., etc. But the Chinese yuan has been under tremendous pressure. Right? So it's puzzling. But if you look at what really determined the direction of the yuan, you know, really, I think it's the carry trade or the carry trade opportunity that has arisen from the interest rate yield gap between China and the U.S. So if you look at, at the worst moment for the Chinese currency this year, the yield gap between China and the U.S. has widened to a, a historical record level. It's on par with what we saw in 2006. So it creates a steady yield gap on a depreciating currency, where in a country, the central bank has to maintain an easing policy. Right, so it's a very easy carry trade setup. So I think as a result, even though from a fundamental perspective, there isn't a very strong reason for a Chinese yuan to depreciate, but it did yeah, all through 2023. So I think now, because the US Fed is probably pausing or about done for this interest rate cycle, then I think the Chinese interest rate is sort of at a very low level that is keeping steady. So the yield gap between China and the U.S. shouldn't widen further from here, or it would actually starting to narrow. So if that's the case, then the carry trade setup would be blown up by a narrowing yield gap. So if so, then it probably doesn't pay to put on even more aggressive carry trade at this juncture. So I think as a result, the pressure on the yuan should alleviate. So I would say that Going to 2024, you are slowing down China muddling through, then the change in expectation and also the yield gap alone is enough to lift the RMB out of the, the yuan out of this uh, current trough. So I would say that, yeah, you know, once again, 7.3, 7.4 is about one of the lower points for this cycle. And one shouldn't be too pessimistic at this level and shouldn't be too aggressive to pull on uh, the carry trade that, that has worked well throughout 2023. Cool. Time is running out, but I do have one really, really quick question that I want to hear from you in terms of the answer. I think we all agree that notwithstanding all the challenges we had in 2023 this year, we hopeful that 2024 would be slightly better. I guess that applies to the equity market as well. Obviously, it's impossible to say that things have reached the absolute bottom, but I think we both agree that the downside is smaller compared to previously. And whether we start an uptrend or not really depends on the economy, but uh, at least uh, there might be 
opportunity for a rebound. So in that context, uh, what sectors would you suggest our investors to be exposed to? I think there are many value to be had in the market right now. I think most people will agree with us that the market is very, very cheap. But if you get in now, especially for a fund manager who has suffered losses for three years now, so it's very rare for the Chinese market to go down three years in a row. And this is the third year of the market loss. So it's tough. So if you're a fund manager, even though you see value in the market, but because of the risk appetite has been destroyed, and also the experience of holding on to Chinese assets for the past three years hasn't been good, and it leaves a really painful memory in your brain. So it restrains many of the fund managers from action, basically. So I think everybody can see where the valuation is for many sectors. For the tech sector, for example, it's trading at nine times PE. So with some dividend yield, and that is still growing low double digit. So on any account, it's very, very cheap, but still no, there's no buyer. For the banking sector, for example, where the central Huijin has been uh, using its own money to buy, and it's trading at about you know five times PE, or three times PE even, or and 10% dividend yield. So the value is obvious, but if one were to put money to work at this juncture, one has to be able to stomach the volatility. So the volatility is coming from all sorts of places. Uh, the U.S. Fed, you know, last night, for example, Powell said that, oh, you know, I wouldn't be hesitant to hike interest rate if it's necessary. All right, so, oh, and then the market sort of gave in and peeled back some of the gains. And then this morning, we see weakness in the Hong Kong market continues. And then you get uncertainties on the currency front. So even though just now we discussed this should be the low point, but this is not the end of volatility for the currency market. And earnings, yeah. So next year, just now we discussed, you know, how the property sector can continue to be a drag on the Chinese economy and therefore it's going to affect earnings growth in this part of the world. So earnings volatility could increase as well. So you, you get all these uncertainties from many, many fronts that makes you as a fund manager very difficult to deploy your money. And your clients could be asking questions. You know, if you buy into a volatile market now and then Someday when you wake up, you probably lose some money. Then, you know, the client would be asking questions. Why are you being so aggressive? So it's tough. It's very, very difficult. But then at the same time, this is a lower point of the cycle. If we put money to work and we have the appetite and the stomach for the risk, then I think six months later, we'll be loving and we will be thankful for making a decision right now. Yeah. Sometimes I think your mental strength uh, is probably more important than your analytical mind in this kind of environment. So let's just be hopeful for a better year. All right, that's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Thank you very much, Hao, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. 
please refer to www.juliasbear.com/legal/podcast for further important legal information. 